Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the Ark of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, grab a few friends and meet weekly to go through the Word Diet. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so grab them and work through the Word Diet on a weekly basis. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Numbers, an important historical book in the Old Testament that has great relevance to the Christian life. My goal with this show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible, so please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. On the previous two shows, we did our introduction to the book of Numbers and the prologue, chapters 1 through 10. Those episodes and all others are available on podcast through iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. This week, we start into the memorable historical narratives within the book of Numbers in chapters 11 and 12. Lord, be with us today as we open up your scriptures. Help us to see in ourselves the people of Israel and your response to them. We pray that we would learn more about your character, more about our own character and our flaws and limitations. We pray that we would respond well to your mercy and grace as we seek to follow you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, the station and the show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Numbers 11 today, grumbling, rebellion, and God's responses. So we're after Mount Sinai, all the time that's been spent there from the middle of Exodus through Numbers chapter 10. We have chapters 11 and 12, a journey to the southern tip of Canaan, which is 150 miles, about an 11-day trip but they're delayed a bit here because of the events in these two chapters. To this point, things have been looking pretty good with arrival in Canaan on the horizon. There's been no trouble since the Golden Calf incident back in Exodus 32. There's a lot of obedience in Numbers chapters 1 through 10, which we've been underlining. And in the meantime, they've received God's law, the tabernacle, and God's presence. Unfortunately, things are about to go south with three instances of grumbling in chapters 11 and 12, and then outright rebellion in chapters 13 and 14. So let's look at the first episode in Numbers 11, 1 through 3. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So that place was called Taborah, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. So the passage starts off with the key issue. Now the people complained. The response from God in verse 1 and then again in verse 3, God's anger was aroused. And then verse 3, fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Now outskirts means that this is not near the tabernacle. Back in Leviticus 10, we saw God's fire come down very near the tabernacle when unauthorized fire was offered by the priest, but that's not what's happening here. This is the people, and the outskirts of the camp would be farthest from the tabernacle, and that's where the unholy and unclean things would be centered. So that's appropriate for what's happening here. 
Fire is a sign of divine activity, whether in blessing or in judgment. Back to Leviticus 9 and 10, remember that the fire of God comes down as a sign of blessing at the end of chapter 9, signaling God's presence in the tabernacle. But then in chapter 10, the unauthorized fire leads to God's fire in response. In verse 3, we're told that the place is named for God's fire, Taborah. Matthew Henry says this is to perpetuate the shame of a murmuring people and the honor of a righteous God. And the Hebrew is not completely clear here, but the context suggests that people died, that the fire was not just merely among them, but among them in a way that just wasn't a pyrotechnics display, but something that caused damage. Either way, God's response here implies a problem with the subject of their complaint and or the way they handled it. As Gordon Wenham puts it, leaving the relative fertility of the area around Mount Sinai, the Israelites soon found themselves in the most inhospitable desert and they began to complain. A modern traveler would sympathize, but God and the biblical writers did not. God is justified here. He is perfectly just, and he is not capricious. And so we know that context matters to understanding God's response here and always. So what's the issue? Well, one possibility is what they were complaining about. Unfortunately, the text is not very helpful here. There are some undefined hardships, as the NIV renders it, Matthew Henry says, what did they want? What had they to complain of? They had enough to make them easy, even in the wilderness, if they had but hearts to be content. Maybe they weren't getting what they wanted quickly enough. The biggest questions in Scripture when we question God are why and how long. Maybe that's another version of it here. Maybe they have expectations that it's going to be easier or more fruitful or quicker or something, and it leads to these general grumblings. Or perhaps it relates to leaving Mount Sinai. They've been there for a while. Maybe they'd settled in and gotten comfortable. Maybe they've left Mount Sinai and they expect it to be a quick ending, but it's taking longer than they they expected. And I like that the term is vague. It reminds me of our complaints, which are often subjective and ill-defined, and at the end of the day, not really much to get excited about. The most direct answer from the scripture in verse 1 is to whom? It's in the hearing of the Lord. So, first of all, it implies it's loud enough to reach heaven. They're also saying it in God's presence. Of course, God is everywhere, rather than going to God themselves. And one might protest that, well, they see Moses as their mediator, but they don't go to Moses either. So, they complain to each other, which is akin to gossip rather than going to Moses and or to God. Reminds me of Matthew 18, when someone sinned against us, we need to go to that person. And a lot of times we go to everyone except that person, and that's not acceptable. Here they have a problem with God. You go to Moses or you go to God. You don't just complain to each other. Or maybe it's the timing of the complaints that bothers God. These complaints begin three days into the trip from Mount Sinai. This starts off another trio of complaints that parallels what happens after the Red Sea in Exodus 15. There you have a lack of water, which causes trouble. Exodus 16, you get the manna. And then Exodus 17, another trouble with water. Now, the context is different. Exodus 15 comes just after the plagues and the deliverance from the Red Sea. But there God gives them water with no rebuke. Here, God gets angry very quickly with them. For one thing, this is the second set of complaints, and the second time is more aggravating always than the first time, but they also know God a lot better. They've received the law and teaching. They have more experience with God, including the tabernacle and the tent of meeting. The lack of faith in this context is more troubling. After God sends the fire, verse 2, then the people cried out to Moses, again, their intercessor. 
Verse 2 continues, Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So we see some anger and justice here, but also a lot of mercy. They're not getting nearly what they deserve. Here's what Wenham says to introduce this passage and to talk about the trio of complaints that this introduces. This episode heads a series of stories in which every group among the Israelites rebels at God's provision and plans. On each occasion, the sin is described and then the subsequent divine judgment. As a result of unbelief and disobedience, all the adult males except Joshua and Caleb die in the wilderness, not in the land of promise. All right, let's take our first break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Numbers 11 today. In the first segment, we covered chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, which is the first complaint. And now we start into the second complaint with verses 4 through 9. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves, and it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. So first thing is to remember to read this in context. It comes after verses 1 through 3. This is the second of three complaints before the full-blown rebellion in chapters 13 and 14. Verse 4 says, the rabble with them began to crave other food, and again the Israelites started wailing. So that word again connects the two complaints, and we'll connect it later to the third complaint. The rabble are non-Israelites. It's the only use of the term, and whoever they were, they were influencing the Israelites. Now maybe they came along for the ride for spiritual or material reasons. Remember that When Israel left Egypt, the Egyptians, many of them had been persuaded about the power of God, and Israel also brought a lot of stuff with them and were otherwise impressive in many ways. And so you could picture some Egyptians wanting to leave some sort of oppression in Egypt, wanting adventure, wanting to follow the God of Israel or some such, many different reasons. But here, they cause trouble. Maybe they don't don't know God as well uh, and were more likely to rebel. In any case, they do cause trouble here. And the sad thing is that the Israelites were unduly influenced by the rabble. And so here we have a picture of the world's influence on us, at least potentially. It's also funny that by calling them the rabble, we're holding them in low esteem, but they're still allowed to influence us. And we would do the same thing with the world. We would hold the world in low esteem, but yet it often disciples us. And so we have to be very careful of those influences. The key word here is crave, and this is something that's out of control, passionately coveting or desiring the wrong things. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians 12.31 that it says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. The word there is usually translated crave. So craving per se is not a problem. Craving the things of God is a wonderful thing. It's craving the wrong things that will get you in trouble. Likewise here, there's nothing wrong with food or good food. The problem is craving it. It reminds me of Larry Crabb's distinction between desiring and demanding. We have legitimate desires, but we cross the line when we move into demanding this in our relationship with God. Or in material terms, it's okay to enjoy something. It's not okay to idolize it. And then notice the other verb here that they wail. This is a degree of pain within the struggle, which is not good. 
uh, flavors it quite a bit. What should they do? Well, they should remember. They should pray and petition God for provision. They should at least ask, but instead, again, they just head back to grumbling and wailing. Now, the crux of the matter here is that they wanted other food and meat in particular in verse 4 compared to the manna that's mentioned in verse 6 and then described after that. The word other is key here. The complaint is not about amount, it's about variety. The complaints in Exodus 16, the parallel passage, were about amounts of food, but here they just don't like the menu. Now, verses 7 through 9 provides an additional description of manna, revisiting and extending what we'd read earlier. Exodus 16, 15 says, It's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Psalm 78, 25 describes it as the bread of angels. Here in the text we have in verse 7, it's like coriander seed and looked like resin. The latter phrase would be something that's light in color and or sticky. And this parallels what we see in Exodus 16, 31. Verse 8, it tasted like something made with olive oil. In Exodus 16.31, it says it tasted like honey, so we get some sort of oil-honey combination from those two passages. And verse 9, it arrived overnight. It's interesting that in Exodus 16.14, it's described as a morning dew remnant. Here it is described as arriving overnight. Of course, both of those can be true. The Hebrew term here is literally, what is it? Which implies that there are no natural explanations for it. It's unfamiliar in terms of name, the description is odd, and the writers are trying to describe it as best they can, but we don't have anything like it, and they didn't back then. There's a sample in the Ark of the Covenant, which also implies its uniqueness, and we know it's supernatural at least in terms of its provision, the extent of it, the geographical consistency, the doubling on the sixth day so they wouldn't have to uh, gather and collect on the seventh day, the Sabbath, and then that it lasted for 40 years. Now, the specific complaint is in verse 6. They had lost their appetites. Literally, their souls had dried up. The Hebrew word here is nefesh, which is used for life, breath, and soul. And verse 6 continues that we never see anything but this manna. You know, it feels good to play the victim sometimes. And some people in particular seem to love the drama to make something bigger than it is. And that's certainly what this seems like to be here. And at one level, it's, again, reasonable to want something different to eat uh, on any given day. But then again, no, this is not reasonable because God is providing for them in this miraculous way. Uh, This stuff apparently tastes pretty good. So, yeah, you can be bored with something Uh, sick and tired of it, I guess, at some level, but can you really be bored with God's supernatural and truly free, gracious provision? I sure hope not. I think it's also indicative that blessings can become curses, and that's so often the case in life. We think we want something, but then uh, having it turns out to be problematic or even a curse, and that's what happens here. The Life Application Bible says, every morning the Israelites drew back their tent doors and witnessed a miracle but soon that wasn't enough. And I think the same is true for us. It's not enough that God provides, but we want it to be something new or more or exciting. It's a version of what have you done for me lately. In more spiritual and symbolic terms, oil in verse 8 is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Ian Thomas in his great book, The Saving Life of Christ, draws an analogy to us getting bored with our constant supernatural provision of the Holy Spirit and the many other things that God provides us. And so our mistakes here parallel what we see in Israel. We think that God and his provision are not enough. We take it for granted. Or what we'll talk about next, we can overestimate what the world has to offer. Verse 4 is interesting. If only we had meat. Well, they had meat, but either they couldn't 
use it, uh, required sacrifice, or maybe it was impossible during travel, or they wouldn't. Matthew Henry says they wanted meat as cheaply as manna. They didn't want to sacrifice their own animals. Either way, they had meat, they just couldn't access it or wouldn't access it. And it's noteworthy and ironic that they had so recently enjoyed a feast of meat with the fellowship and peace offerings in the previous chapters. Again, we have something, we have something to be thankful for, and yet days later we can start to complain and grumble that we don't have what we want to have. Or in more spiritual terms, they had worship, they had tabernacle, they had law, and again, it's not enough. We divide our lives into Sunday morning versus Sunday afternoon through Saturday night, and we live like Gnostics. We believe in the things of God for a few hours on a Sunday morning, but then the rest of life we're filled with ingratitude and living life as if God doesn't matter. And that's what Israel is doing here, and we see ourselves as we look in the reflection of the mirror. Verse 5 is really staggering. We remember the stuff we ate in Egypt at no cost. Verse 18 continues this when they say we were better off, literally happy and comfortable in Egypt. And this is a heart or head problem. They're remembering the wrong stuff. For one thing, they're not remembering well enough. They're only remembering half of the story of their past. Look at that phrase, at no cost. Are you kidding me? And they'd eaten a bunch of fish when they were slaves? I don't think so. Matthew Henry says that they do not remember the brick kilns and the taskmasters, the voice of the oppressor, and the smart of the whip. And this is true for our own sin and our own past as well. We exaggerate the benefits, we downplay or ignore the costs. So sometimes they're not remembering well, and sometimes they're just remembering the wrong stuff instead of the right stuff. They're focusing on the wrong things rather than the things that their mind should be focused on. They're thinking of the temporal and the past when they should be thinking of the eternal. They're focused on some inconsequential things, relatively speaking, in the present, rather than focusing on the eternal that God has put in front of them. They're focused on their stomach rather than being redeemed and the access they have to the promised land. What is our focus? Are we focused on the past, the present, the temporal, or the eternal, the grace of God? They're demanding help on their own terms. They're demanding immediate gratification rather than focusing on contentment and gratitude. The Life Application Bible says dissatisfaction comes when our attention shifts from what we have to what we don't have. And ultimately, this is a lack of trust, contentedness, gratitude, and joy. Back to Ian Thomas, and he talks about how this connects to their past in Egypt and ours as well. Thomas says, Here was a redeemed people brought out of Egypt and on their way to the land of promise, but with their thoughts, their ambitions, their appetites fed by the memory of that from which God had redeemed them. Have you been weaned from the things of Egypt? Thomas goes on to say, They only had memories of that from which they had been redeemed, because they had never gone on and in to Canaan, and so they had no memories of that to which they had been redeemed. And this is an important lesson that Thomas is very helpful with, and I will revisit later. We remember what we've been redeemed from, but if we haven't been redeemed to something, then the things we've been redeemed from often look too attractive. God has called us to great things in this life as believers, and if you haven't been redeemed to that, then the things of this world will not grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Three last thoughts before we move on. First, this is a recurring problem. There are those of us who struggle with chronic complaining, and this is a particular problem for those sorts of people. All of us complain sometimes. So for some of us, this is an an event. 
For others of us, it's a lifestyle. And particularly if it's a lifestyle, we've got to figure out how to get our gratitude, joy, contentment where they need to be. We need to develop our trust, our faith in God by focusing on the reality of what the world offers us and the reality of what God is offering us. Exodus 16.3 in the parallel passage, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. And this is just crazy talk, but it's their reality. It's the way they think about things and that's got to get fixed. The parallel account I think is very helpful and the text gives us some clues that this is the case. Both passages are in the second month of the Hebrew year, and both of them coincide with the northward migration of the quail across the Sinai Peninsula. So this is just the sequel to the first unfortunate movie that we saw a year ago in Exodus 16. Second, this points to the power of the mind in causing us all kinds of trouble. Ian Thomas says, sin is conceived in the imagination. We often think the grass is greener somewhere else. James 1, 14 through 17 is the biblical version of this. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And the good and perfect gift has literally been coming from above for Israel in terms of manna, and yet they don't believe in the goodness and greatness of their God. Finally, I think it's interesting to imagine how God would have responded differently if they had approached this differently. What if they had acknowledged God's powerful deliverance and gracious provision in the past and then requested a hamburger or a pizza or something? What would have happened? And we'll never know because it's not how it went. But it's interesting to think, what exactly was the problem here? And it's the extent of their ingratitude that is at the heart of it. If they had approached it differently, presumably God would have responded quite differently. All right, let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio, previous podcasts are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Numbers 11 today. In the first segment, we covered verses 1 through 3, which is the first of the three complaints in chapters 11 and 12. And then in the previous segment, we covered verses 4 through 9, which introduces the second grievance, uh, the complaint that, that Israel has against God. We stopped at verse 10, so I need to pick that up. It ends the introduction with a nice summary verse. It says, Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. So every family is wailing. Again, the verb wailing is troubling. Every family is probably hyperbole, but again, terrible either way. And each is at the entrance to his tent. So this is a very public response. It's one thing if you do these sorts of things and complain privately, but this is a public social problem at hand. Verse 10 continues with the two responses. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. Now we're not told exactly here why Moses is troubled. It could be by God's provision, but it's at least certainly because of the people's response. When we think of God's anger, this is a natural response when one rejects his good and gracious gifts, but his particular response is put on hold until verse 16. Instead, now the narrative goes to Moses' questions first in verses 11 through 15. 
He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me if I have found favor in your eyes, and do not let me face my own ruin. So a really rough passage here. Let's break this down. Verse 11 opens with two questions about Moses and God. Paraphrasing it, it's, why did you do this to me, and what did I do to you? When we ask God, why did you do this to me, the preposition to implies something's being done to us or some form of punishment. If we ask instead, why did you do this for me, that's the position of grace and gratitude. Here Moses is assuming that God is actively harming him. He doesn't even go to the natural consequences of following God in a fallen world with people who are knuckleheads. These things are going to happen. We're going to encounter difficult circumstances. And so our response to those can be to accuse God, as we see Moses doing here, or to ascribe it to sinful people around us, or the consequences of living in a fallen world. The second question, what did I do to you, is sort of a natural question. It doesn't seem that this is deserved, especially with the Old Covenant, with its blessings, obedience formula. Moses is doing all the right stuff, so why isn't he getting it better from God at this point? So, a semi-legitimate question from Moses there. Verse 12, three questions about Moses and the people. Reminds me of Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve evade responsibility. Reminds me of Genesis 4, with the brother's keeper reference from Cain about Abel. So those aren't good signals. The last question compares the Israelites to infants who have not yet been weaned. It exaggerates Moses' effort quite a bit, but on the other hand, they were acting like babies. And it is a rare example where Moses seems not concerned enough for the people under his charge or maybe he's just like a frustrated parent. He just can't take it anymore. In mentioning the forefathers later in this verse, it may imply that the people don't deserve the land at all that had been promised to those forefathers. Verse 13 opens with a specific question about meat for all these people. And of course, it's wrong for Moses to take this burden on himself. Where can I get meat? Well, he can't, Moses. That's not how this is going to go. And surely he knows this, but he's very frustrated and not thinking clearly. And then the complaint later in 13, which includes the flavor of, they keep wailing. You can just picture Moses just getting so tired of this, right? Wailing at a point in time is not a big deal, but when it continues, it just gets aggravating. Verse 14, the burden is too heavy. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where God will not tempt us beyond what we can bear, but sometimes we'll put temptations on ourselves. Remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, just a few chapters later in the Bible, talks about dealing with such suffering that he felt like they were to the point of death. So it's one thing to have the reality intellectually that God will not give us more than we can bear, but that then there's the subjective reality that it doesn't feel that way many times. Moses is, or at least feels, alone here. And he says, I cannot carry all these people by myself. Again, it overstates the case greatly and completely ignores the role of God. Moses feels the weight here of trying to stand in God's shoes and to do it alone. And of course, that's impossible. Moses' proposed remedy in verse 15 is terribly harsh. Put me to death right now. Reminds one of the book of Jonah and Jonah's 
uh, overwrought expressions of uh, grief and com- complaint at God when he's doing his work there. You know, for parents, we know that wailing of a few kids is like torture, and Moses is going through something much worse than this. But still, come on, put me to death. For the reader, we think back to Exodus 32, where God offered to start over with Moses and to get rid of the people. And now Moses reverses that and says, well, you can leave the people, you can have them, just put me to death. The other phrases in verse 15 are also interesting, but I don't have much to comment about them. Do not let me face my own ruin, if this is how you're going to treat me. And if I have found favor in your eyes, again, this is the Moses of Exodus 32 through 34, who had found remarkable favor in God's eyes. And so he brings that up here to try to lobby for his own death. But how serious is Moses here? It seems like a lot of drama, and he's certainly not thinking with a clear head, and his heart is deeply troubled. In sum, Matthew Henry says he complains too much about a sensible grievance and lays too near his heart a little noise and fatigue. How could he bear the terrors of war? That's an interesting question as well. Moses is about to have all kinds of troubles, and will he be able to deal with those if he can't deal with these people? Seems like a bit of a pity party here. Moses could have asked how to improve the situation. Ironically, like the people, he seems to tire too quickly, and he seems surprised by the people's reactions, just like the people seem surprised that they're going to go through some difficulty here and there. Now, all that said, Moses is still doing much better than the people. He is focused on leadership issues rather than the food. We have the people's lukewarm grumbling and not to God, but near God. Here we have Moses with honesty, passion, and the ability to take things to God. And this points to the importance and the availability of an intimate, personal relationship with God. Seen in this light, Moses' complaints are nothing much that is personal. He's just saying, I'm hurting. Why is this happening? And you can see where his frustration is coming from. And especially in the context, he must still have hope because he's taking this to God. And he thinks there is a way out of this. And that's why he takes it to God in the first place. He doesn't see what it is, but he does take it to God. Finally, remember who's writing all this down. It's Moses. So Moses is sharing his own warts here. In the next chapter, in verse 3, it says Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. And we get a hint of that here. For Moses to share this about you know, how his struggles were manifesting here tells us a lot about the man and about his humility and about his ultimate faith and hope in God. So God provides his first answer in verses 16 and 17. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. So verse 16, you have the 70 elders who are leaders. It parallels the 70 who would be in the Sanhedrin in the time of Jesus. By the way, this is fulfilled in verses 24 through 30, which we'll cover in the next segment. It also connects to Exodus 18 and what we had seen throughout the end of Exodus where governance is being delegated out to other parties. Uh, Here it's the elders, and that had been announced in Exodus 18, but it's extended here. We have Aaron and the priest, etc. So it's not all about Moses. Moses has a special relationship with God. Moses is the top leader, but God has been delegating power throughout the leadership structure of Israel since Exodus 18. Verse 17 is the particular solution. God would speak with Moses and take some of the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them to help carry the burden of leadership. Now, if we read this literally, it sounds like by using terms like take and put, that it's a plus minus. 
that it's literally Moses will have some proportion reduced and they would have some proportion increased as if there's a finite amount. Of course, we know the Spirit's not finite, so I wouldn't advise reading this too literally. This is not a math equation. Then again, perhaps Moses does lose something here, not just in a relative sense, but in in an absolute sense, so that the community gains. Remember, Christ leaves and he says it's a good idea so he can send the Spirit. And so that's in play here as well. And again, it's probably valuable to the community not to see Moses as some sort of Superman or lowercase g God. And so the efforts to devolve power down to the elders accomplishes a number of tasks. The larger issues here is that Moses gets to choose them, but the key, God promises to qualify them for service through the Holy Spirit. Matthew Henry says they should be made fit, else they might prove to be more a hindrance. Think about elders and deacons in a church, right? You pick people who are qualified, but it's still ultimately the Spirit of God that enables them to be fit for service, both in their preparation for it and in their execution of those duties. These were already established leaders, but it formalizes leadership and delegates power to them and responsibility. Were some of them the complainers? Interesting. On the one hand, you'd want to avoid them if they have poor character. On the other hand, it's sometimes wise to put people in charge if they have the passion to complain in the first place. And one wonders what Moses is thinking about this. I mean, he's happy to get rid of some of the responsibility, but the other efforts at delegation haven't always gone so well. Remember what happened with his brother Aaron back in Exodus, and how difficult would it be for Moses to give up control? The good news of him being so frustrated is it would be relatively easy for Moses to give off power at this point in this context. A few other things that don't happen here that are interesting. God gives him no grief for the questions and complaints that he lodges in verses 11 through 15. God provides solutions instead of empathy. There's no active listening here. God just gets to the point of what he can do to help. What's the solution to the problem? If we play with gender stereotypes here for a moment, is God acting like a male or is he providing an answer to a male? This is very solution-oriented. He doesn't dignify Moses' remarks. I think sometimes when we talk to people, there is a time for that, certainly, but there's other times when people are talking crazy and you just move on. You don't even dignify the remarks. And he also doesn't fix everything or lighten the load. Empowerment is not often about lightening loads. It's about strengthening backs. And that's what God does here to strengthen Moses indirectly by strengthening the community and its leaders. The second part of God's answer is in verses 18 through 20. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? So the opening of this seems like God is going to be fine and patient and merciful and all that. Consecrate yourselves. You will eat meat. The Lord heard you. The Lord will give you meat. This opens up very much like the answer God gives in his patience and mercy back in Exodus 16. But late in verse 18, there is a reference to Egypt that he repeats from them. That's not a good sign. And then it gets really rough in verses 19 and 20. It's not just X days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. So big time sarcasm here from God, uh, wielded like a club. 
yeah, it's also interesting to think what else God could have done. He could have withdrawn the manna and said, hey, how much do you like the manna now, right? Be thankful for what you have. But God goes a very different direction here, very aggressive and actually providing what they want and just giving it to them in great volume. It reminds me of the old days when you hear stories about kids smoking and their you know, dads would have them eat cigarettes or something. It has that kind of flavor to it. Later in verse 20, because you have rejected the Lord, that's the bottom line here, including the wailing that was so deeply offensive to God. Why do we ever leave Egypt? That's an immense slap in God's face. And then the closing phrase, the Lord who is among you. This is the primary point of their forgetfulness. And the key point of Sinai's law and tabernacle, not just to be a God of rules and law, but to be a God who is in their presence, in their midst. And this base ingratitude, this immense forgetfulness is at the heart of their problem here. The Lord is among you and the Lord is among us. When we get stuck in ingratitude, right, we need to remember the Lord is among us. Remember his mercy and grace to us. All right, let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Numbers 11 today. In the first segment, we covered the first complaint of Israel after leaving Sinai in verses 1 through 3. And the rest of our show, we're dealing with the second complaint, which takes up the rest of chapter 11. God has given a two-part solution to Moses' complaints. He's going to send the Spirit on the elders, and then he says he's going to provide so much meat that the people will get sick of it. And that gets Moses to reply in verses 21 through 23. But Moses said, Here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month. Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. I think the first thing to say here is it's amazing that Moses questions or messes with God at this point in the dialogue. I don't know if this is a sign of how close Moses is in his relationship with God or his blindness and stupidity, but I can't imagine getting in God's way, so to speak, uh, by asking these questions. But Moses is doing some math in his head here, verses 21 and 22, and he's saying 600,000 men, that's 2 million people for a month, and we're in a desert. Yeah, right. But again, let's do some theology. God has provided enough manna. Why not meat? God has been able to, to do amazing things in Moses' sight before. Why not now? Moses also has a short memory. Notice also that Moses specifies flocks and herds in verse 22. That's not how God's going to deliver it. It's quail that are going to take care of the problem. He's limiting God to ground and water transport, or more broadly, he's putting God in a box, and God doesn't work in a box. Matthew Henry says, Moses reckons it must be the meat of beasts because they are the most bulky animals, not thinking that the flesh of birds, little birds, should serve the purpose. So this results in God's sarcastic response, is the Lord's arm too short? You will now see me move, basically. The former is a phrase that figuratively means, is the Lord's power limited? And we all struggle with this, right? There are these hard-to-believe accomplishments of God in our own lives and in history, and we pray to God for big things, and when they're answered, somehow we're surprised. And the answer is, as it is here in verse 23, is the Lord's arm too short? All of this will be an opportunity for God to show his power and his more than ample provision. He can do more than we ask or imagine from Ephesians 3.20. 
I have a longtime friend, Joe Donaldson, who actually did uh, my marriage with Tanya, and uh, he likes to be sarcastic and would beat himself up over it and saying, you know, I shouldn't be sarcastic. I'm like, well, God's sarcastic. So a lot of times our sarcasm, like our anger, is not well done, but there is a place for sarcasm. And we see that here. When is sarcasm effective? Now, that's a different discussion. Everything should come under Ephesians 4.29, that it should build others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Often sarcasm serves to tear people down, or it's a form of flippancy. But sarcasm per se is not a problem, and we see that exhibited by God here. Sometimes within our menu of options, the best response has a sarcastic flavor to it. Okay, verses 24 through 30. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him, and he took some of the power of the Spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but did not do so again. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders but did not go out to the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his Spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. So this is a follow-up to verses 16 and 17, where God had said he would put the Spirit on the 70 elders. This is the fulfillment of that. Verse 25, this is a one-time prophesying, and this is in contrast to the continual New Testament power of the Spirit on these leaders. But the Spirit comes on them, also very similar to Saul in 1 Samuel 10, 18, and 19. For one thing, this would establish credibility and the Spirit did the same thing for the leaders of the early church in Acts 2. Verse 26 is an interesting aside that two of the elders, Eldad and Medad, had remained in the camp rather than going to the tent. We're not sure why. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied. Matthew Henry describes this as a special providence that these two should be absent, which showed the empowerment by a divine Spirit rather than Moses. And remember that people used to see God as local, God is moving in a few different places now, so it's less local and therefore more impressive. In verse 27, an informant steps up to notify the leadership of this, and that reintroduces us to Joshua in verse 28, and hear his worry, watching for rivals, and his input about the two that they should be stopped. A number of passages in the New Testament parallel this. John 3.26, John the Baptist's disciples struggle with some jealousy about Jesus. Paul talks about something similar in Philippians 1, 15 through 18. But let's look at the words of Jesus himself in Mark 9, 38 through 40, when this situation comes up with the disciples. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. And that's exactly the response we get from Moses in verses 29 and 30. I love his line, I wish this could happen to everybody. I mean, how awesome would that be for Moses as a leader if everyone was spirit-inspired, if everyone was obedient, if everyone was a leader, then Moses' life as a leader would be so much easier. He also asked a pertinent question to Joshua, 
whether he was jealous for him. And this also sets the table for the challenge to Moses' leadership in chapter 12 and Moses' humility in chapter 12, verse 3. So this is not only an important moment for Joshua to look in his heart and to understand how God moves, but also to set the table for the rebellion against Moses by leaders that we'll read about in the next story. As we look forward to the New Testament, we have the amazing importance of the Holy Spirit. Consider John 16, 7, where Christ says it's to our advantage that he would leave so the Spirit would come, and the biblically expressed desire from early on for the Spirit to be as universal as possible. It starts with this surprising reference in this story. It extends to the prophets with the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, and it's finally achieved at Pentecost. One last application here is that it's often the case that ministers today feel a need to control their ministry and limit leadership opportunities, and that is inconsistent with the ministry of Jesus, but also back to these earlier passages where Moses is leading the church, so to speak, and the power is devolved to a set of leaders. If that's your approach to ministry, it's not biblical. Instead, you need to fulfill all of the Great Commission, not just to make converts, but to make disciples and disciple-makers, and you need to follow the commands in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, to empower your people. Last passage today, chapter 11 of Numbers, verses 31 through 35. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits deep all around the camp as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten homers. Then they spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore the place was named Kibroth Hadavah, because there they buried the people who had craved other food. From Kibroth Hadavah, the people traveled to Hazaroth and stayed there. Verse 35, the post-quail travel to the next stop is detailed. Back to the beginning of this passage, verse 31, the wind drove the quail in from the sea. Now, quail are a low-flying bird that would migrate at this time of year. So, the existence of this is not supernatural. It's the extent and the timing and the volume that are so impressive and so miraculous. The word for wind here is ruah, which is also translated spirit. So that's an interesting parallel. Quail were all around the camp, a day's walk in any direction, about three feet above the ground, or possibly, less probably, I think, three feet deep. Again, the extent and the convenience here are amazing. You can picture them saying, hey, it doesn't get any better than this. Verse 32, they gather two days and a night, at least 10 homers each, which would be 60 bushels. But then it gets dark and ugly. Verse 33, but while the meat was still between their teeth, and before it could be consumed. It's interesting that it's in the middle of enjoying it. And sometimes God does move that way, in the middle of enjoying something that is ill-gotten fruit. Sometimes judgment and consequences come. It seems so easy, and they had worked a bit to gather it, and then it's all for naught. And this is a particularly rough punishment. Again, think of a parent enticing a child with what they could have had, or what they did get, and then punishing them beyond that, or with an overabundance of it. It's also an interesting picture that they tasted it, but they were not fed by it. God's good gift, so consumed, provided no sustenance to those plagued. It's a great picture of gluttony in action. And then verse 33, the anger of the Lord burned, and he struck them with a severe plague. 
God gave them what they wanted, but it was going to be costly. As in Exodus 32, they're having to eat their idol. Remember what happened with the golden calf. They had to drink it in the water. In the ministry of Jesus, Christ's feedings of us are grace, the feeding of the 5,000, that he's the, the bread, he's the blood. But here, the feeding is of God's wrath. And verse 34, the place is named for the burned people who craved other foods. Literally, the phrase here is graves of craving. I like what Wynnum says about this. The two different answers that God gives are actually quite different. The outcome of the request was very different. The spirit was bestowed within the court of the tabernacle in the clean and holy area. The quails fell outside the camp in the zone associated with uncleanness and death. The gift of the spirit drew men towards God. The quails led them away from God. May we embrace the spirit and avoid the quail. May we live lives of gratitude for the great grace that our good and great God has given us. Lord, thank you for all that you give us. We thank you for the example of the Israelites here. We pray that we wouldn't laugh too hard at their mistakes, but look in the mirror and see how it relates to us. Lord, you're so good to us. We pray that we would follow you closely and love you and others better in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Good to be with you today. Previous podcasts are available online, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.